Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. It is Thursday, August 29th, and today we're going to devote the entire episode to recent developments in the push to seek accountability for the opioid crisis. First, we'll take you to Kentucky and Oklahoma to break down this week's big news about two opioid manufacturers, Purdue Pharma and Johnson & Johnson. Next, Stat Managing Editor Gideon Gill, who's overseen our opioids coverage since the start, will join us to walk us through how we got here. And finally, Gideon will help us map out what this week's news means and what to watch next when it comes to assigning blame for the public health crisis with little precedent. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the read out loud? Subscribe to Stat Plus to get stories like these. Stat Plus delivers daily market moving coverage from across biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. Subscribe today to get access to breaking news, exclusives, and analysis from our award-winning team. Subscribe to Stat Plus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. So let's start with a rundown of this week's news. Tonight, Purdue Pharma ready to make a deal. The makers of OxyContin and its owners, the Sackler family, offering between 10 and $12 billion to settle more than 2,000 lawsuits linked to the opioid crisis. So that clip was from NBC News, and it's a pretty interesting deal, as it's reported, because the offer is not just to hand over a bunch of cash to the cities and states affected by the opioid crisis. Instead, the billionaire Sackler family that owns Purdue would contribute $3 billion in cash, but then they'd also turn the company into what they're calling a public beneficiary trust, and the profits of that trust would go to the people suing them. And that's an important thing to remember when you see that $10 billion to $12 billion figure. According to The New York Times, about $8 billion of that is an estimate of future Purdue profits. And there's no guarantee the company's products actually make that much money. So before we learned about that potential Sackler settlement, we got our first look at a Sackler patriarch. Right. So the Sackler family, of course, controls Purdue Pharma and has billions of dollars, but they've always been intensely private. And Richard Sackler, who's been at various times Purdue's president and the co-chairman of its board, is especially private. So that's why there was so much interest this week in the video of him testifying about Purdue's role in the opioid crisis. Would you state your name, please? Richard Sackler. How much money has Purdue Frederick or Purdue Pharma made off the sale of OxyContin? I don't know. That video is from 2015 relating to a Kentucky lawsuit against Purdue, and it was obtained by ProPublica and published this week. So we'll talk about that more later in this episode. But the other big news related to opioids this week is regarding Johnson & Johnson. The company was ordered to pay more than $500 million to the state of Oklahoma because of its opioid marketing there. So an interesting twist here was that this was taken as good news for J&J. The state wanted $17.5 billion, and Wall Street expected J&J to have to pay more than $1 billion. 
Yeah, and arguably the good news angle was kind of short-lived. As our colleague Ed Silverman reported, J&J has lots and lots of cash. And so its situation with respect to these opioid lawsuits is, you know, it's something that they will probably be able to endure. Some of the other companies facing these suits are much smaller. And so the Oklahoma precedent at $500 million might seem small on the face of it. But if you multiply that out by the many states, municipalities, and the District of Columbia that are suing these companies... That arguably sets a tone that some of them may not survive. And so finally, this is also the week that Stat won a three and a half plus year legal fight with Purdue. And that victory is expected to bring a trove of sealed documents to light. So joining us to discuss all of these things is Gideon Gill. Gideon is a managing editor at Stat who has run this line of coverage uh, from Stat's very earliest days. Gideon, I think you're the first stat editor to make an appearance on the Read Out Loud, so welcome. Well, thanks, and it's about time. (laughs) So, Gideon, let's go way back to early 2016 when Dave Armstrong, who was then a reporter at Stat, approached you in the newsroom with an idea. Can you walk us through that moment? Sure. So, Dave had an interest in the opioid addiction crisis and had been sort of paying attention to it even though it wasn't yet making daily headlines across the country. Dave had heard from a source that there were some documents about the way Purdue Pharma had marketed OxyContin in Kentucky early in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And this was important because OxyContin, when it hit the market in 1996, really began a wave of addiction that many experts say seeded the opioid crisis that we have today. So when Dave approached me with this, I thought, you know, we need to get these documents. And Dave first actually had filed a open records request with the attorney general in Kentucky, which was denied. And they steered us to this remote courthouse in Eastern Kentucky in a small city called Pikeville, where these files were under seal. And so we then decided that it would be worth trying to get these files. And I then proceeded to call an attorney I knew in Kentucky because I had worked in Kentucky for many years. I happened to know the best media lawyer there, a guy named John Fleischaker. And John said, well, happy to take the case, but just so you know, your odds of winning this are really not very good. And by the way, it's going to cost you probably tens of thousands of dollars because Purdue has deep pockets, as we know, and they are going to fight you all along the way. Even if you were to win, they're going to appeal it all the way up to the Kentucky Supreme Court. So of course, at that time, Stat was still a very young startup, not yet a year old. How did you think about that in in moving ahead with this legal battle? Well, Dave and I were pretty eager to pursue this, but our executive editor, Rick Burke, urged a little caution just because he wasn't sure that, you know, given, as you say, we were young, uh, we were startup, and he wanted to run this by our owner, John Henry. So that's what we did. I laid out the situation for him, and I said that, John, you know, our chances of winning are not good, could cost up to $100,000. What do you think? And it was an interesting moment because... John Henry is better known as an owner of sports teams like the Red Sox and Liverpool. But he had, you know, gotten into the media business a couple of years earlier, and we didn't really know exactly where his heart lay in all this. But remarkably, John did not hesitate. He right away said, 
of course we should file a motion to unseal these documents. This is exactly the kind of thing I created STAT to do. And we went right away and had the lawyers file the motion to unseal these documents in March of 2016. So let's fast forward then to this week when STAT finally won that legal battle. You sent Casey Ross, one of our reporters here at STAT, to Kentucky to try to pick up the unsealed materials. What happened? We found out that the uh, documents were at that point still in the Court of Appeals in Frankfort, Kentucky. And so Casey showed up there this past Monday morning, walked in and asked for the documents. And I got this email right at nine o'clock from Casey saying, they're bringing me the documents. So in the newsroom here at STAT, we jumped up and cheered. We were like really excited. And then a minute later, I hear from Casey, oh, well, these are not the sealed documents. So I said, go back and ask for those. So then they bring them four banker's boxes of documents. And Casey quickly realizes that the sealed documents are still in yellow envelopes marked sealed. Boy, was he tempted to (laughs) open those envelopes. But fortunately, he asked, well, what should I do? And we checked with the lawyer and the lawyer said, no, we need to wait until the judge does that. So Gideon, it's interesting because we, you know, obviously we live in this digital age where we expect everything to be delivered over the internet. But here we're talking about physical documents, paper documents in a box or in an envelope sitting in a courthouse. Can you tell us like how much material is there and what's the timeline for us to be able to sort of see what these documents reveal? The sealed envelopes, there were nine of them. Some of them, Casey said, were as much as three to four inches thick. He could feel in some of them uh, what seemed like paper attached to DVDs. And we think perhaps you know, that might include the video of the Sackler deposition that you talked about earlier, but we don't know. So those four bankers boxes have now been sent back to the judge in Pikeville, Kentucky. And Casey talked to the clerk there this week. Basically, they said, call back October 1st. So let's talk a little bit more about that video deposition you just mentioned. It it dates back to 2015 and and in Kentucky, and it features Dr. Richard Sackler, who is obviously a key figure in the family and in Purdue. We had seen a transcript of that deposition, but actually seeing Sackler on video was something that I know was kind of eagerly pursued by us and eagerly anticipated by others, including viewers of HBO's John Oliver show. Gideon, what was it like for you to finally see the video of Richard Sackler? It was quite remarkable, Damien, because, you know, Sackler is a very elusive figure. I think there had been one photo of him available on the internet from a number of years ago when he gave some talk at Yale, but absolutely no video or audio. It's interesting to just watch him sort of stir in his chair and drink a lot of what looked like Coke or Diet Coke as he's doing this. And Gideon, was there a moment, a response from Sackler in this video that was most memorable or most striking to you? Well, there are a lot, but I guess the one that most hit me was when he's asked how much money the Sackler family has made from OxyContin. He says, I don't know. Then he's asked, was it more than a billion dollars? And he says, probably. And then he's asked, was it more than $10 billion? And he says, I don't know. 
And then he's asked, was it more than five billion? He says, I don't know. I don't know. If it was me, I think I would know that, but <laughs> Yeah, it was interesting for me watching it because I wondered what people would think, whether they would be satisfied or perhaps a little disappointed because as you mentioned, he just sits in his chair. There's no Robert Durst moment, you know, where he kind of turns to the camera and says, I did it. I did the opioid crisis, which would be absurd, obviously. But when you sit through it, I don't know. I wonder how people who may have built him up in one way in their imagination felt about the actual revelation of the real Richard Sackler. So I actually heard from a dear friend I know in Kentucky whose daughter died of a opioid overdose. And she texted me that morning and just was so grateful that that video was out. And, you know, it just brought some satisfaction, certainly not closure, but just some satisfaction to finally see this person and hear this person answer questions about this. Yeah, I think the Sackler family as sort of this shadowy, um, mysterious group has played a really interesting role as, as sort of a villain in the opioid crisis. As you had pointed out the other day, Damien, you know, it's a lot easier to kind of wrap your heads around a family than, you know, sort of these anonymous executives in a New Jersey office park. Yeah. And this, of course, comes at a moment where the Sacklers, who have long been prolific philanthropists, are kind of being driven out of public life. I think it's fair to say their names are being removed from galleries that they have donated to around the world. And their many progeny keep giving interviews uh, where they, you know, plead to sort of not be blamed for the opioid crisis. And the public response to those interviews has not been universally positive. So let's move to Oklahoma to talk about a different court battle that came to close this week. Uh, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, that was a loss for J&J, which must pay more than $500 million to the state of Oklahoma because of how its marketing contributed to the opioid crisis there. Right. So the numbers here are worth some discussion going forward. As a few analysts pointed out, if you look at that $500 million figure, the way it breaks down, if you look at it as a liability per person of the state of Oklahoma, it's about $238 per Oklahoma citizen. And that could be an ominous sign for future settlements or future uh, jury awards in these lawsuits, because states with higher health care costs and larger populations like California, Texas and New York they could considerably use this as kind of a precedent to ask for much, much more money from some of these companies. And I think the terms of this ruling were, were interesting as well. You know, J&J was ordered to pay an amount of money for baiting the entire opioid crisis in Oklahoma for a year, not just J&J's share specifically. And that's an interesting result because, as analysts noted, J&J's pain therapies have accounted for less than 1% of total opioid prescriptions in the state and in the U.S. So I think it'll be interesting to see if we see future penalties that are not taking into account sort of what fraction of the crisis that a given company contributed to. So let's look ahead. Gideon, what are the most important things you're going to be watching for? I think as these settlement negotiations go on with Purdue as well as the other companies that are involved with the all the consolidated cases in federal court in Ohio, they're going to be conflicting interests. So the plaintiff's lawyers are pushing for as much money as they can to benefit the plaintiffs. And Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers, they want to be done with this. But lost in this is that I think there's a lot of 
families of uh, people who've died of overdoses who really want to see a public accounting. And in the same way that we've pursued the records of Purdue Pharma that are in this courthouse in Kentucky, there are millions more records that are part of the federal action. And what I think is important to watch is that nobody in this week in talking about the settlement negotiations has talked about what's going to happen to those documents. And in prior settlements that Purdue has been involved in, they have insisted that documents be destroyed as part of the settlement. And I think that these families would be unhappy with that outcome. And I think uh, some state attorney generals also may not go along with that as well. Do you think that there will ever be a full accounting of kind of the, the history here and the marketing efforts that went in behind the use of opioids? And we're starting to see little bits and pieces about it. But like you say, there's lots of records that have yet to become public. I don't know, because, you know, the public doesn't have a seat at the table in these negotiations. And you would hope that the same thing that happened with the tobacco industry settlement would happen here. In that instance, huge volumes of archives of records um, had been placed in uh, at the University of California, San Francisco has a tobacco archives. It's online. And it's been very important to help understand what happened, how the tobacco industry managed to addict uh, so much of the public to, to their products. And, you know, it's a very analogous to this situation. And I sure would hope that there's an awareness of the importance of having these records be public at some point. So I think that's a good place to wrap things up. Gideon, thanks for joining us in the podcast. You're welcome. Delighted to have been here. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And we'd love to hear from you. You can uh, send us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com, and we really do appreciate the feedback. And if you like what we do, as always, tell a friend or leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. And before we go, we should note that today is Damien's birthday. Damien, happy birthday. Happy, happy birthday, birthday, Damien. Thank you very much. See you next week.